You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. I'm Alison Critchley, Chief Executive of RSA Academies. Can I welcome you to the RSA today? Uh, what I will do now is very briefly introduce the panel. So we have left to right, right to left, Marcus Bell, uh, the Director of Teachers and the Teaching Group at the Department for Education, Charlotte Townsend, uh, who is one of the teachers at the RSA Academy Arrowvale in Redditch. I'm delighted also to welcome Dr Adam Bodison uh, from the University of Warwick, where he's the director of the Centre for Professional Education. Uh, Kauta Darush uh, is our 16-year-old winner of a national competition that Warwick University have held, um, asking... Are teachers necessary? Uh, now, I hope I won't be stealing her thunder if I say that her answer was yes. Um, and, and finally, Lauren, <laughs> Lauren McInerney, <laughs> McInerney, apologies, uh, who is the editor of Schools Week, uh, which is a much-read magazine for teachers and educators, and who ran a series earlier in the, in the term about uh, school teachers' recruitment issues. Now then, whether you see it as a crisis or merely a challenge, there is a growing consensus that the issues around teacher recruitment and retention are becoming more difficult. Certainly for the schools in our our RSA family of academies, recruiting and retaining great staff is pretty high on their list of things that they are concerned about. There's also a worry that things may get worse before they get better. If you like, a perfect storm without the George Clooney. No, no reaction. I tested that on people earlier and they said, no, people won't. George Clooney film, perfect storm. It's worth a watch if you like George Clooney. So we have brought together this panel to get their perspectives on the issue. What are the challenges? And equally important, what can we do to make sure that we continue to get the best, brightest, creative, interested, interesting people into our classrooms? In this room, on this panel, we have people from all of the organisations that can make a difference to that. Schools, teaching school alliances, universities, government, media, teachers themselves. So what I'm hoping is that by the end of this session, we've got some not only a stronger sense of what the real issues are, but also how collectively and individually we can do something about that. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Marcus, who will give us some overview of the issues. Well, thank you. My name's Marcus Bell, and I'm Director of uh, Teachers and Teaching in the Department for Education. Um, What I want to try and do with my uh, session, and I've been told I've got seven minutes, and I've got quite a lot to squeeze in in seven minutes, so I may have to talk rapidly, Uh, but I want to try and tell a bit of a story about where I think we are on teacher recruitment using some data. Um, So that's what I want to try and do. Um, uh, And I think some of the things that I'm going to share with you are probably very familiar and some not so familiar. And I think the point of doing this is to try and tell a bit more of a nuanced story about where we are with teacher recruitment and to ask whether this chimes with your own experiences or not. So first of all, um, uh, I think there's no doubt that teacher recruitment is getting more challenging year on year. Uh, What this slide shows is um, how we're doing with annual recruitment of NQTs uh, against the targets. Uh, That's the annual target set by the department. And the um, two points I want to pick out from that slide uh, are, uh, one, we are not meeting some of the targets. So if the number is less than 100%, we're not meeting the target. Uh, Secondly, the position is very different uh, by different subjects and different phases. Uh, So the position is different in different areas, is, I guess, the main message from that. Uh, In terms of why um, uh, it's getting more challenging, 
Um, the reasons are complex. Um, I just had a couple of slides uh, to share about two of the most important reasons. So one reason is demographics. Um, so pupil numbers uh, are forecast, and obviously it's, it's future forecasts of pupil numbers that drive uh, teacher numbers because we need to know how many teachers we're going to need three, four, five years in the future. Uh, so demographics are um, uh, rising quite sharply. We're expecting pupil numbers to go up. That means we will need more teachers overall, so that uh, makes the position more challenging. Uh, the second reason is a bit more complex to explain, but it's to do with the economy. Um, uh, and this chart does two things. Um, uh, the blue line is economic growth. Uh, so you'll see uh, there's a great big dip in 2009, uh, which you will remember. Uh, and the, the bars uh, are the rate at which uh, applications for teacher, teaching profession are rising or falling. Uh, and very roughly, there's a correlation between these things. So when the economy um, collapsed in 2009, we had two very good years for teacher recruitment afterwards. Things have got steadily harder since the economy has been recovering. Uh, so I mentioned these two things about demographics and the economy because they are important factors driving the numbers. They're also things that we can't really do anything about, indeed don't want to do anything about. We just need to manage the consequences. Um, this uh, is a picture about um, the overall teacher recruitment position, how the numbers stack up, because the, the numbers each year that attract all the comment are our annual recruitment targets. Uh, and it's worth saying that's um, the, the green arrow in the top left here of about 23,000 a year. That's the number of newly qualified teachers that we're recruiting. But it's worth saying the overall recruitment position is much more complex than that, uh, because there are nearly half a million teachers, uh, and things which drive the, there are important things which drive the numbers other than the annual number of NQTs, uh, uh, like retirements, uh, deaths, leaving the profession, and so on. So I think all, my only purpose for putting this slide up is to say we need to keep an eye on and try and influence all of those things as well as um, NQT numbers. Um, this, this slide, I think, has a slightly different message and um, just tries to, to look at um, certain key indicators around teacher recruitment uh, in some historical perspective. So uh, what I put on the slide is four, four different years, uh, going back to 1999, um, and I think the overall message from that slide, and th this is where things become uh, a bit more intriguing and a bit more difficult to explain, is actually a position of some stability um, uh, over that period uh, in the sense that um, uh, teacher numbers have gone up over the last 15 years. That's because pupil numbers have gone up. Uh, the level of vacancies in the system isn't very different from uh, uh, any of those years. The pupil-teacher ratio, which is um, uh, an important driver of the numbers as well, uh, is fairly stable temporarily filled posts are also fairly stable. So I'm not putting this slide up to prove to anyone that there isn't a problem, because I said at the beginning things were getting more challenging, uh, but I think it's interesting, certainly in terms of understanding what kind of problem we have and what's actually uh, going on. Um, the next slide um, is about teacher retention, which I, I think we talk about much less than teacher recruitment, but I think we probably ought to uh, talk about it a little more. Uh, and... Um, uh, what this slide does is basically show um, what percentage of teachers who enter the profession in a particular year were still teaching in a state-funded school a given number of years afterwards. And I put this up partly for myth-busting purposes because there's lots of comments and numbers flying around about teacher recruitment at the moment, uh, many of them well-informed and accurate, some of them not so much. Uh, and um, so there is, a, there is a figure that I sometimes hear about um, 40 or 50% of teachers leaving the profession within five years. If you look at the top line, um, teachers who went to the profession in 1996, 52% of them were still in teaching 17 years later. So um, I think the, the overall uh, 
picture from that is actually, again, uh, of some stability uh, in terms of teacher retention. And actually, the teaching profession is quite successful uh, at holding on to people for uh, quite a long time. Next slide is about uh, vacancy rates. And um, there are different opinions about vacancy rates and what they tell you. So some people say um, vacancy rates don't really tell you anything because the school will put anyone in front of a class rather than carry a vacancy and won't declare it. Uh, other people take a different view. Uh, what, what this slide does is it compares vacancy rates in different regions. And I think the two points about them are, um, first of all, uh, they're all very low. Uh, but secondly, some of them are much bigger than others. Uh, so particularly the southwest, I mean, it's 0.8%, but 0.8% is still eight times higher than 0.1%. Uh, so one thing that we've been doing recently is to try and um, uh, dig in a little bit more into uh, local vacancy data, because I think one, one thing that is true is that in the department we have an awful lot of data about the national picture. I think what we understand far less well is... Um, uh, how, what perspective the national picture casts on the local position. And there might be very different positions in different areas that are being concealed by, uh, by national data. So we've been looking more closely at the local position. Uh, and that's been, uh, again, been sort of intriguing and interesting without necessarily telling us what the answer is. So um, what this slide does is it compares um, vacancy rates in three different authorities by school. So I've, I've anonymised the local authorities to... Uh, protect the innocent. Um, but essentially, I think the story of this, uh, this slide is that in, in the first one, the first local authority, uh, almost all schools have almost no vacancies. So that's an area, and, and this is current data, but that's an area which really doesn't have any teacher vacancies at all. Um, the second one, um, the great majority of schools don't have any vacancies, but there are quite a number uh, from left to right um, with really quite high levels of vacancy, in some cases at 10%, uh, up to 10%. How you manage a school with 10% vacancies, I don't know, but um, that's what the data is saying. Uh, the third one, I think, tells a similar story, but with a, with a different distribution. So I, I put this slide up because I think that there are some things uh, we need to look much more closely at to understand what's going on in different places. So I think the story of that slide is not that there is a general teacher recruitment crisis uh, or challenge or whatever you want to call it. It's that different areas are facing different sorts of challenges uh, and possibly uh, behaving in different sorts of ways. So th this data needs further analysis. So the, the sort of thing it might be picking up, and you know, we don't know yet, um, is that schools with high-level va vacancies are perhaps particularly schools which are struggling, schools which are in category. Maybe that's true. Maybe they're all in a particular sub-area of the local authority. Um, so there's a recruitment uh, problem perhaps in the coastal areas of a county rather than all of it. So I think what I'm saying is that there's, there's more to be looked at and thought about here uh, in terms of what light the local data can uh, cast. So, um, uh, as I say, that was a very quick trot through some interesting data. Uh, I don't think it tells you very clearly that things are good or bad. I think it tells you that things are complicated and that there's more to look at. Uh, questions I wanted to ask, though you will ask what questions you... Uh, want to ask later on, um, but uh, is the situation now very different to previous years, and if so, how? Because some of the headline data suggests it's not that different um, in terms of how the, the overall labour market is behaving compared to before, so what are the differences? And I ask that question not to wish away difficulty, but if we are going to address it, we need to know exactly what kind of problem we're dealing with and, and where. Next question is, um, uh, I think, really about uh, how, how uh, good you think that data is, whether that chimes in with your experience or whether it tells a completely different story. 
Uh, third question is uh, about national and local data and uh, how far they're telling us different things. Uh, and finally, um, do we have a good enough insight into what actually uh, attracts people into teaching uh, generally? Because, again, I think... Uh, since going back to my third slide about the economy, we've faced greater competition uh, from rising private sector wages in the private sector. I think getting a better fix on exactly why it is that people want to come into teaching and trying to make it more attractive would help. Thank you. Marcus, thank you ever so much for that, giving us a lot of facts on which to have our discussion and uh, an interesting attempt to uh, guide the uh, questions afterwards, so thank you for that. Can I now invite Charlotte to give her perspective as a, a relatively new teacher in one of our schools? Um, so, as you know, my name is Charlotte Townsend. I am a teacher at RSA Academy Arabelle in Redditch, south of Birmingham. Um, I began my teacher training in 2012 and whilst I can say there have been times I've paused to wonder how I am managing to do my job, I haven't looked back since. So as part of my preparation for today, I interviewed um, 11 colleagues and two teacher trainees. Um, the first question I asked was, why did you go into teaching? Um, some gave some quite fair and pragmatic <coughs> responses that teaching suited their home lives, that it offers a secure career path um, and clear routes for progression. Of course, the small factor of the long holidays did come up. Um, but more importantly are the answers that make teaching stand out from any other job or many other jobs. Um, for many, they had always wanted to be teachers, where the others, the desire to join the profession had come from school or work experiences. Um, they gave lots of reasons, a mixture of them, as to why they joined the profession, from love of their subject, uh, thirst for challenge and creativity, and the desire not to work uh, in an office doing the same thing day in, day out. So teaching ticked lots of boxes. But don't worry, I haven't forgotten the most important thing, and that is our students. The teachers I interviewed wanted to make a difference to young people, to their development, and to give them the opportunities that they themselves had had when they were at school. So we love teaching, but teaching is challenging. Out of the 11 colleagues I interviewed, eight of them had considered leaving teaching within the last five years, five of whom seriously. So I asked why. Um, to begin with, many felt that the regularly changing goalposts within teaching, such as new government strategies or OSTA criteria, can be frustrating in teaching. Um, not only is it frustrating for us, but it's also frustrating for our learners. Um, as it seems that as soon as we've got used to one new strategy, new set of goalposts, um, new grade descriptions and boundaries, these change again. Now, of course, developments within teaching are great and are welcomed, but we do need the time to test them and to implement them. Furthermore, new strategies and new goalposts add to our workload. I asked the teachers I interviewed on average how many hours they work a week and all said between 60 and 70. For me, um, I worked out that on a good week, by which I mean working four evenings and a couple of hours on a weekend, I work approximately 57 hours a week. Um, during a week that might include a parent's evening or um, a department review, um, an observation, I can work up to and above 65 hours a week. And this is as a recently qualified teacher without any extra teaching and learning responsibilities. Whilst I have, for the most part, gotten used to these hours, when I first started teaching as a newly qualified teacher, this was a lot to get used to and was a hard reality. 
I probably worked more hours that year because all of my planning was relatively new um, and it took a while to get used to the amount of marking required. There was so much to learn and remember. I know that I achieved a lot in that year and got huge encouragement and support from my school, um, but at the end I was tired and my confidence was low. High workload is not only tiring, but it can impact heavily on home life, homes, and uh, this is something I found particularly difficult in NQT year and find, you know, continue to find difficult. Teachers I interviewed also find that this is a cause for concern for them. Um, and I think the oddest thing that came out of the interviews was the word guilt. Um, if we take an evening off to recharge or spend time with our families, we feel guilty for not working. Another aspect I wasn't prepared for in teaching that came up a lot in the interviews was the high levels of pressure, accountability and professionalism required in teaching. And many feel this is not reflected in their pay. Um, as trainees, you have little insight into this part of teaching and are suddenly hit with it as you begin your NQT year. Teachers and schools are constantly under scrutiny. And as teaching is personal, we, do feel we are more sensitive to this and feel this more keenly. Within this, the recently qualified and newly qualified teachers I interviewed felt that they were often pushed into um, developing quickly and being fast-tracked into management, uh, feeling that their primary job, teaching, can be put to the wayside. All the teachers I interviewed also felt undervalued. This is mostly due to outside views of teaching and our portrayal in the media. Here's an example. When I was in my fourth year of my university degree, I was discussing becoming a teacher with my peers. Many of them said, why would you want to do that? And asked, and, and clearly felt that teaching was not a profession of choice, but something people do because they can't think of anything else. Even my director of studies, when I told him my plans, said, what a waste. Um, other teachers I interviewed had experienced this view and had also experienced the view um, repeatedly that teachers work nine to three, don't care much about the students and are just in it for the holidays. This is really frustrating and is a view that is encouraged by the teacher bashing we can see and hear in the media. And interestingly, when I asked my two trainee students if uh, they felt that their expectations before joining the school matched up with the reality, they said that, in fact, they walked about around school, felt a really positive atmosphere between students and staff, and that this really didn't tally up with what they had read in the media. So I asked teachers if they had any solutions. To start, there was a consensus that teacher training needs to be more realistic, um, new teachers could be more prepared, could teach more hours and be exposed to more marking. Secondly, and very interestingly, many said that they were happy with the amount of work we do for students in terms of planning personalised learning, tracking data and keeping up to date with pastoral issues. They felt that this is valuable and can only help our students, but we do need the time in the working day to do each task and each student justice. Having one less class, perhaps, could make a difference so we could focus fully on the others. And this may also help to reduce workload. Finally, we'd like more support from uh, the government and the media so that the profession is once again valued, respected and the work of teachers recognised. We do love our job. We do love the feeling of reward when a student understands something or overcomes a personal obstacle. And we do love that every day is different. We wish everyone else could see this and see that this is why we are still here doing the best we can for our students in spite of the challenges within teaching.
Thank you. Charlotte, thank you so much for that. When we were planning today and thinking about the event, I think we were conscious that a lot of people talk about teachers and teaching, and we don't often enough hear directly from teachers themselves about their experience. So many thanks for that. Adam, can I now ask you to bring to us a university perspective? Yeah, very happy to do that. Um, before I start, can I make a, a short disclaimer? Which it, when, when I first came into this sector, I used to talk about teacher training. And I remember standing up in front of my colleagues on my first day and someone stood up in the audience and said, no, we train dogs, we educate teachers. And uh, I was very uh, promptly put in my place. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm making that disclaimer is because I will use the two terms interchangeably today. Um, because, because the reality is that... Um, in in, in the university sector we do talk about teacher education but actually everywhere else we talk about teacher training and they kind of mean the same thing so my apologies if anybody is is upset by by that term Um, so with the national teacher shortage already more than 5,000 and rising I was asked today to put forward a, a university perspective on this debate and really what I wanted to focus on was the principles of a recruitment system that is able to deliver both quality and quantity because both of those are equally important at at the, at the current time. But I wanted, first of all, to settle a bit of a myth. Um, and sometimes people talk to me about the fact that universities are in teacher training to make money. They are not. Um, if this is actually done properly, teacher training actually costs universities money. They make nothing from it in a financial sense. It actually costs them to be involved. And there's also quite a lot of reputational risks for universities as well. Um, for example, uh, um, this is one of the only avenues in which Ofsted can actually make a judgment on universities universities, the consequences of which could be quite severe if they get this wrong. Um, so th- that's a big dissentive al- already uh, from, from the outset. Now, I should say the financial and reputational risks have always existed and they're not a result of any kind of recent policy um, or move towards a schools-led system. However, one of the big issues for universities now on top of those things is a kind of fracturing, in my view, of the recruitment and admissions system, which has seen universities competing directly with schools in some cases. And that's actually increased the risk of universities being unable to recruit viable cohorts or to plan effectively over the long term. It's a kind of year-on-year planning cycle, which, which makes it, again, more unattractive for universities to get involved. And if you add to that the tightening uh, of consumer rights laws that we've seen recently in the higher education sector, which, which in, in the context of teacher training may actually require universities to perform the impossible task of providing trainees with details of their school placements at the point of application. Um, you might reasonably ask, why are universities still involved in teacher training at all? Um, well, some aren't anymore. Um, to, my, to my knowledge, five institutions have already left. Um, but for those that have stayed, really they've stayed because they feel they have a moral responsibility to support local schools and also to nurture potential scholars who may well contribute to academic disciplines in the future. And I think that's of particular importance when you think there might be decreasing numbers in some of those smaller uh, academic disciplines in universities as well as a chance to inspire that next generation of people there. Um, The traditional PGCE is in many ways, uh, I think, a kite mark of quality, uh, both in the UK and and overseas, and is often seen as the gold standard for those 
people who are actually working towards qualified teacher status. For example, many SKIP providers, so when I say SKIT, I'm talking about those schools who, who can award QTS them, themselves, they're actually approaching universities to say, well, alongside our award of QTS, will you also look at what we do and think about accrediting that with a PGC as well? And I think that's a recognition uh, of, of that quality. And, and I think it's also worth saying that there's an increasing number of British providers who are successful, successfully delivering international PGCEs that come without QTS. And I think, again, it's that recognition of the, uh, the quality that PGCEs bring them. Uh, and on that point, I don't think we should... Um, I think we should be careful not to underestimate the impact of international teacher recruitment requirements on our own recruitment efforts here in the UK. So uh, a statistic that surprised me when I heard that there are actually more British schools overseas than there are state schools in the UK. Um, and if you think that the growth in the international market is such that the number of international schools is set to triple in the next 10 years, um, and you think about the corresponding demand for teachers that comes with that, then that's, that's a real issue. And, and guess what? The key market for exporting teachers into those schools is ours, the British market. Um, uh, you know, so that's on top of all the recruitment problems we've already got. I think we spend a lot of time here criticising education, um, uh, our own education in this country. But the truth is that British education is the envy of the world, in spite of what international league tables might tell us. People look at what we've got and they say, that is the way to do it. Um, if we get back to the teacher supply and training routes within England, I, I think there are three key advantages to university-led routes which are worth uh, flagging. First of all, recruitment power. Quality recruitment at scale is the bread and butter of many universities. They are good at it. They've got systems and processes in place to attract a large number of quality applicants to the profession, and they're well placed to, in my view, fully address the current recruitment issue. The problem we've got is that the, their recruitment is capped primarily for political reasons. In a time of, of teacher shortage, that just makes no sense to me. Surely the limit should be about recruiting a required number of teachers rather than limiting or predetermining the choice of training route. So I think we do need to look at that. Secondly, university-led training is by its very nature research-informed and research-inspired. Trainees' practice is very closely linked with research, thereby creating an improving and developing system. This recognises that quality teaching 10 years ago is different to quality teaching today and will be different to what it looks like in 10 years' time. Um, without that external input, we create a system which kind of feeds itself. Now, of course, that does amplify existing good practice, which is great, but it also creates this kind of artificial glass ceiling um, because we've got this closed system, and I think we need to be really careful about that. And, and lastly, university-led provision, I think, is well-placed to deal with the inevitable situations when training doesn't quite work out the way we'd planned for, 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 for those students, when they make mistakes. Because we're one step removed from the classroom, we, you know, we can have university tutors that actually support the trainee and can give them those second chances or fresh starts in a way that's about training. Whereas if you're actually employed by your training provider, that, you know, sometimes these things can turn into kind of HR issues and, and employment type issues, which are, are, aren't quite as straightforward. I mean, the reality is that the first priority for schools, quite rightly, is the students in those schools, the, the children. But the, and, and, and therefore, if you've got trainees in there as well, sometimes there is a conflict. And I think universities do bring that kind of impartiality to be able to put the trainees first sometimes when that's appropriate. Now, I should be clear here, I'm not against schools-led provision as part of a system in where there are options for trainees to choose the route that's most relevant for them. 
My concern is that at a time of neat, a national teach, uh, recruitment shortage, there are these artificial caps which are placed on universities. Every year, when the School Direct programme fails to recruit the required number uh, of trainees, um, you know, we get the phone call, universities, can you step in and, and do some last-minute recruitment for us? In 13-14, two-thirds of the places were filled on School Direct, whereas PGCEs recruited uh, to 90%. Um, I think there's also another issue, which is that when universities recruit um, potential teachers, they're looking at recruiting people for the profession. And the reality is that when schools recruit, they're actually recruiting people for the profession and in that specific school. And what that means is that sometimes we're in a position where schools say no to very high-quality applicants because they're not right for that school. And that's just... uh, leakage in the system that we can't afford at at this moment in time. Uh, At Warwick we've kind of addressed that through a kind of pooling system where we're working with different alliances and where we have people who are not right for one school we can kind of share them with another school and so on but I don't think that's uh, widespread. So my own view is that this is really about partnership. It shouldn't matter really whether we're talking about a schools-led provision or a university-led provision if we actually recognise what we're good at. What, what, what is it that universities bring to the table? What is it that schools bring to the table? And we do that in, with a genuine sense of partnership. We can actually make this work. But I think the system is set up at the moment in a way that it doesn't always make partnership as easy as it could be. Um, the last thing I should say is that uh, we haven't mentioned the professional skills tests yet. Um, so for those people who don't know what these are, these are kind of numeracy and literacy tests, which are at the moment a condition of entry to get onto a training course to be a teacher. They used to be, uh, not to get onto the course, but they used to be a barrier of entry to the profession. And that's been shifted. And, and I think there's a real issue with that. Um, the problem is it means that we get some people who, if I give you an example, let's say I do a history of art degree and I haven't done any maths since I did GCSE, and I was all of a sudden I have to do mental maths at speed in test conditions, and if I don't get that right, I can't be a teacher. Well, I don't think that's really fair. What we can do is work with people when they're actually on the training course to get them up to that level if they need those skills, which is right. But we shouldn't, again, have that leakage in the system where we're losing uh, good people. Um, you mentioned earlier on, Marcus, the kind of the figure around 40% uh, of people leaving a profession after five years. That figure actually came from uh, Michael Wilshaw um, in one of his uh, Ofsted reports. And in fact, um, YouGov's own data showed that more than 50% of teachers actually currently thinking of leaving the profession right now. And I think that was some, something that you, you were talking about. Um, So let me finish with a warning, really. I I think we've just got to be really careful that in this push, in this drive for a schools-led system, which I in principle agree with, we've got to be very careful that we don't push universities out of teacher education altogether. Otherwise, we risk failing an entire generation of young people, and that simply cannot be acceptable. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Adam. I wondered at what point this afternoon the, uh, the issue of caps would come up. I thought it might well come with you. So, so thank you. Um, as I said earlier, we're keen to get the full range of perspectives. And actually, the other people who are most affected by this are students. And therefore, I'd like to ask Kauta to say a few words about teacher recruitment and retention from a, from a student perspective. Thank you. Being called a teacher is one thing. But any the title of a good or excellent teacher is another. Anyone can teach. Simple. All you really need to be good at is explaining things. But as I said, anyone can teach. You're probably thinking, is this girl okay? I mean, if teaching was so easy, why on earth are we seeing a shortage of teachers across the UK? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's no use being considered a teacher if you're merely going to provide your students with textbooks to copy from and exams to face. 
You might as well just give up and work in McDonald's instead. I mean, Ali's there promoting happiness with their happy meals. Textbooks make us far from happy. Well, for me anyway. A good teacher is someone who is passionate in their subject area and willing to pass that on to their pupils. For example, my geography teacher doesn't just stick to the specification. He wants to expand our knowledge on geography and causes young geographers. A teacher's job should be to inspire, motivate and drive our current and future generations to success. The reason why we have developed into the individuals that we are today with a passionate, determined and inquisitive approach to learning new things is through the guidance of our teachers. Even the most intelligent people still require a teacher to not only provide them with information, because that's Google's job, obviously, but to interact with them as humans, not robots. That's if we relied on technology. Let's use Albert Einstein as an, as an example of an individual with an unbelievable mind. And when I say unbelievable, I'm not putting emphasis on the word for no reason. He was a genius. But what has Einstein got to do with all this, I hear you ask? Well, he was inspired by his lecturer, Albert Abraham Michelson, to come up with a theory of relativity after a little school trip to the Savannah River. So teachers aren't really that bad. <laughs> Education isn't all about preparing you for employment. It's about making changes creating opportunities, being more open-minded, which is why we need excellent teachers. But we can't do this alone. A teacher is nothing without a student, and a student is nothing without a teacher. They both work together towards success, which leads me on to my conclusion. We, as intelligent human beings, have the ability and power to make a change. How many times have we come across a problem but solved it by working together? Yes, there is a shortage of teachers in the UK, but we should remain optimistic and use what we have already learned to inspire the growth of even more teachers. Thank you. Fabulous. Thank you for that. Again, working together, partnership with some themes here. Laura, can I hand over to you to kind of bring us back to the sort of overview, bigger picture, and, and your, your take on all of this? I'm going to have difficulty following that one, I think, out of But there's, there's a really important point in what you've just said, which is, you know, if you've got this fantastic geography teacher, and if he had started in the profession and had left, or in fact had never been encouraged at all to come into the profession, we could have missed out on him. And so I suppose what we've been doing at Schools Week is trying to look at what are the things that are actually happening? Marcus gave us a good overview, and I'm going to come back to some of those statistics because there are different ways of looking at this. Actually, what was your geography teacher called? Is it Mr... Mr. Cool. Mr. Cool. So if, if we were looking at him now, what situation might he find himself in? Let's think of it like that. Well, on this 40% figure, we've got one person saying, you know, 40% of people don't leave in the first few years of teaching and someone else saying on here, adding that they do. Depends where you begin from. If we look at teacher training through to the end of the first year of teaching, about 40% of people don't end up becoming teachers from the beginning of training. If we go from the beginning point, as Marcus did, of when people start as teachers, actually we're not really losing anybody else. It's about the same as it has been for the last 15 years. So the argument that teaching is so horrific, everybody is fleeing, isn't yet backed up by the retention figures. We can't say that for definite. You're absolutely right, though, Adam, on the international schools. We recently revealed 18,000 teachers last year went to teach just in international uh, British schools abroad. That was more than were trained to be teachers in universities last year. So we net loss just to British international schools. Forget anything else. That's a problem. 
There's also an issue here around um, those figures that Marcus showed that look very, very tiny, so the temporary rates and the vacancy rates. Now, there's a reason why they look very tiny, and it's to do with the part of the year where they're taken. What's very noticeable, though, um, and I wrote them down off the slide, actually, is uh, the temporary filled rate was 0.5%, and then it became 0.9%. The vacancy rate was 0.1%, and then it became 0.3%. So they sound tiny, but that rate of change... You've got one almost doubling and one trebling is a problem. Because what we know is that when we have these changes, they can move very, very rapidly. So London in the early 2000s went from being fine to having what looked like a very tiny uh, temporary and vacancy rate. It was, only, it was only a couple of percentage points, but it happened very, very quickly. And once it hit that very tiny percentage rate within the data that we have, it felt in schools, if you were there in the early 2000s, absolutely terrible. I came into the profession and was a teacher before I became a journalist in that era. And I worked in a school that had 65 teachers and 11 of those positions were cover teachers at the time. And it was horrendous. So I agree, the retention figures, it's not that people are disappearing. Recruitment figures, there are some issues. And it doesn't look that bad, but actually it's growing. And so if we're not at shortage or crisis or anything else, there's a good potential that we could get there. So what's causing it? This was something else that we've spent quite a lot of time looking at because we've got ministers and civil servants saying the figures say everybody's there, this is fine. But we've got hundreds of head teachers telling us every week, I can't find anybody. So what, where's the interconnection? The easy answer is it's the economy. And the easy way to do that is to do, in fact, what Marcus did. In 2010, the economy was very bad. It was very easy to find teachers. But let's look back early in the 2000s period. Actually, 2004, 2005, those were really good economic years. We actually had managed to get the London problem back on track and people wanted to be teachers. It's probably uh, no surprise that in that era, tons of cash was bundling into schools and we were chucking up BSF buildings and there was expensive advertising campaigns. And I'm not saying we've got that cash anymore, but it's not that straightforward to say the economy is good, so no one wants to be a teacher. The unattractiveness of the job and the media, I understand the media can be unhelpful. It's why we're trying to be very, very conscientious as we do this. I know what it's like to be in a school and get whacked over the head by the media as well as much as I know what it's like to be in a newsroom. But actually, with young graduates in particular who make up the most of entry into teaching, the media can do very little. This is a group who've just spent 15, 18 years in classrooms their understanding of what teachers are is much like Halter's. It's from their own teachers. It's from their own experiences. It's often if they've got parents, their own their parents and their family. So the attractiveness of teaching is actually quite a difficult one to, to do on entry. That it, there are things you can do with advertising and so on, but I'm not convinced yet from the evidence we've seen that that's the problem. So we've still got this issue. Numbers say it's fine. Everybody else says it's a nightmare. What's happening? We've got two theories really that we've been trying to work on one of them is very very difficult but I might as well reveal it today we think there's an issue that we're going to call tired teachers and this is it's an important that we've chosen that carefully there is an issue in that there is a number of teachers we believe who are um, either being moved on when schools are being taken over so currently schools that are languishing are being turned around very very quickly as part of that process a lot of staff are being moved on 
Um, some of those staff feel uh, very tired, very got at. They sometimes feel the accountability, the responsibility now in schools is very, very high. So they would rather work temporarily and not have many of the responsibilities that you have when you're a permanent employee in schools, or they want to take a period of time out. And what we've got, we think, is this kind of small percentage possibly of people moving around in the system or a group of people that um, are not being helped to develop their skills further and are, so, are now no longer getting jobs. So they're sitting on the books somewhere as temporary teachers, which is why that vacancy rate doesn't shoot up, but people don't necessarily want to hire them because they don't feel like they've got adequate skills, and that's why head teachers feel like there aren't enough teachers out there. So we've got this issue that we're trying to grapple with at the moment. Is it that teachers are there, but they're not good enough, they're not being helped, they're not being supportive, it is unattractive to them? And then the second one, and this is, this is the straightforward, honest answer for me. My mum rang me last week and she said, um, my friend Jane, her daughter, she'd quite like to be a teacher, so you know quite a lot about schools. And I said, uh, you'd, you'd explain it to her. I said, to be honest with you, mum, I really don't want to have to explain how you become a teacher to anybody at the moment. It is so complicated. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I have spent 10 years learning and being involved in this sector and doing panels like this every day, and I struggle to explain to somebody how they can become a teacher. We've had a situation this week with teacher training and the recruitment caps where PE teaching, all these these young people, like my mum's friend's daughter, who are applying to become teachers, who've suddenly been told that your interviews are worthless, you've got to go to a school now and apply there, but how do they know which schools have got the spaces? Do they have to, while they're trying to do their finals, they've got to put in 10 different applications? It's complicated. If you're 21 and 22 and the economy is good, And really good milk round recruiters are coming around to you saying, fill in one form, we'll pay you £30,000, we'll train you to be an accountant, we'll fly you around the world, we'll take you to Chicago for your induction, or you can now run around the country trying to apply to 10 different schools to try and work out how you can possibly become a teacher. We have made it too complicated to do. Now, maybe that would work if we weren't in the situation where these vacancy and temporary rates and everything else is going up. This was 2005 and we had a glut of people and we could experiment with this. But as it stands, that complication is too big a barrier, as far as we can see on the evidence, to believe that it's going to work. So we may not be at a teacher shortage or crisis on paper. People are certainly feeling it. And if we could do two things, if we could find these tired teachers and if we could just make that entry a little bit more simplistic rather than feeling like a complicated quiz game then I think we could just get through this and it would be fine. Thank you, Laura. Thank you to all of our speakers for that. Um, what I'd like to do now is to open, uh, open it up to the floor uh, for questions or comments. So we've got a gentleman down here. My name is Fred Jarvis, one time, a long while ago, General Secretary of the NUT. This morning, the Times Ed asked me to recommend the book for teachers for Christmas. <laughs> I first attempted to suggest the letters of Iris Murdoch or the biography of Gore Vidal, but I thought they were hardly uh, role models for teachers. So I ended up suggesting the book by Parsi Salberg called Finished Lessons. I said, if we want to uplift the spirit of teachers, let them see what happens when the government so treats teachers with respect and trust that that profession becomes the most respected and sought-after profession in the country. We haven't had, we've had some excellent points on the platform. We've had 
very little about the image of the profession as a whole, relations with teachers. And I want to suggest that this too is a factor. Here we have what is regarded now by Wilshaw and others as the best generation of teachers we've had. They're still not trusted by the government. Finns don't have any inspection system. They don't have the mass of testing that besets our schools. They don't have a director general of the FDI regarding schools as exam okay. factories. That's what's going on. That's what's determining attitudes. There are the problems of workload, of course. There are, I mean, we're here now, having had the problems of coasting schools, we've now got the schools in coastal towns. <laughs> so we have the, the, the department talking about uh, some super force. I don't know how they're going to choose them, how they're going to get them to go and teach in Grimsby or Blackpool, for example. And uh, you, you've got a whole series of factors here. And you've got now, I mean, what is bizarre? I hear Michael Gove described this morning on the radio as a reforming liberal because he's now going to reform the prisons. It's a pity he wasn't thought of that, that way when he was in charge of teachers. Okay, thank, thank you for that. And I think the po- points about respect and trust and actually also that regional, regional issues which a number of people touched on. Thank you. Uh, person here, thank you. Thank you. My name is Sarah Cartwright. Um, my background is modern languages. I'm a former teacher, head of department, and a teacher educator. I do make the distinction between teacher education and teacher training. Um, I currently am doing um, teacher education on a voluntary basis, um, randomly myself abroad in India and Uganda. Um, I want to pick up some of the things that Laura said, and I want to reinforce, I think, what Adam said, but perhaps a little bit, bit less tactfully because um, as a retired person, one can do that. It's not just a complicated quiz. It's actually um, a very strange upside-down game that one has to enter. And I, too, get many requests for support um, with modern languages, often from people um, from abroad trying to become teachers in the UK. Many, many applicants for modern languages are, in fact, um, Uh, from Europe and around the world and are not actually UK-based. The problem, I think, began with Michael Gove, who for some reason appeared to declare war on university-based teacher education. So the the school-direct, school-based programme, the premise is that that somehow is the better route and yet, clearly, if you look, look at the stats, that is a route that isn't working. So my plea is for some sanity and for um, an about turn. If George Osborne can do it, hopefully the Department <laughs> for Education could do it. Because, really, um, we are in danger of losing knowledge. We are in danger of losing a profession of teacher educators because I worked for eight years as a head of department, as a mentor in a school, doing my very best for my pupils and for the young trainee teachers in my care. But very soon after that, as I became a course leader for a PGC, I understood the difference between the two. And it took, it took a few years to become a, a, a good, a competent teacher educator, because it isn't the same thing. You, you don't have the same perspective, you don't have the same knowledge, you don't have the same overview. And you need to be able to give that overview to your trainees. I'm not going to stop, because I think these are it's essential points. When someone is training, they need to have experience of more than just two schools. They need to have an overview. They need to understand so many complex things 
that actually it shouldn't be the job of a school to do this because a school shouldn't have the space and energy to be able to do that when their main concern ought to be their pupils, their pupils' progress and their pupils' welfare and success. Okay, thank you. I do need to stop you there, but okay. thank you for that. And then, gentlemen... Indeed. Hello, Julian Stanley, Education Support Partnership. Uh, we provide a helpline for teachers who are stressed and tired. <laughs> uh, 60,000 odd people phone and get dealt with every year. So that's quite a number of people in the profession. Uh, but a few things to say. Uh, the OECD report, and nobody picked on this, talked actually about something that's quite central to this. Um, primary t- school teachers and to some degree secondary school, school teachers starting out are paid less than in other countries. So there's a real issue about pay, actually. That's not just, uh, you know, um, a gripe. It's actually a statistical kind of issue. And we're not very very good at recognising that that's a problem. The deal used to be in teaching. You came into teaching because it was a good profession that gave you holidays... Yes, and for the fact that there's so many women in the profession who have caring responsibilities for children and so on. Actually, why is that such a terrible thing? Why do we make that feel so, people feel so bad about that being, you know, something in teaching that's positive? So there's an issue about people's pay and pensions that I think gets lost uh, in this, and that's one problem. There's a supply and demand problem. I went to see NQTs a few weeks ago in Birmingham, a whole number of them, different age ranges. Some of them can't get anything other than part-time contracts in schools, partly because they cost a lot if they're a bit older. People, head teachers are forced into what they can afford to pay. There's an actual real terms reduction in the amount of money in the budget to pay teachers. So, you know, there are some real things that, in terms of uh, George Osborne and so on, that need to be lobbied and talked about that are about conditions and pay. There are other things that can be done around stress, anxiety, and actually resilience in initial teacher training. And one of the things we'd like to see is much more emphasis on those kind of aspects when people start out. Um, so I just wondered if anyone wants to comment on the OECD report. Okay, thank you for that. So, yes, so, so, so three, so, so talk, talk about res- uh, respect and trust, uh, the, the closing down or limiting of the university route, um, and, and then these, uh, the, these latter issues that, that we've just talked about. Charlotte, you wanted to come back. I was just going to say about the pay. I, tried, I sort of alluded to it in, in what I said. Um, but it's another form of guilt, I think. You feel, uh, perhaps some teachers feel guilty to mention it because our primary concern is our teachers and that we we know we get a, a good deal in terms of job security um but um one of uh, the the people i interviewed actually said you know they only were just feeling that the pay reflected what they do within school and that's after nearly 10 years in teaching um so it is an issue but I'd, as i said i think perhaps it's not been brought up and wasn't particularly brought up by me because it is you don't want people to feel, one, that that is what we think about the most because it's not, and two, as a sense of guilt for mentioning it. when our So, yes, it is something that teachers do talk about and is a concern, but I didn't want it to seem as if it were Thank the you. primary concern. Thank you. Marcus, to um, come back? Yeah, so um, I mean, on, on perceptions of teaching, I, I hear all the time the kinds of things that you were saying, you know, that teachers uh, believe that they are not valued or respected by the public, and in, in particular um, by the media. I won't comment on the media. It's not for me to do that. But, but one thing I think is very interesting is if you look at the evidence about what the public actually believe, um, and then so, so there's, there's an annual, I think it's an Ipsos Mori survey about uh, the public's view of different jobs and professions. 
uh, and which ones are at the bottom and which are at the top. And at, at the bottom are estate agents and politicians, as you'd expect. Uh, but, but at the top, um, uh, doctors have always been right at the top. Uh, I think teachers are usually second or third, uh, and that's a very strong and stable uh, evidence base. So I just think it's interesting that teachers believe they're not respected by the public, but the only sort of you know, respectable source of evidence about that suggests that actually they are. So I just think that's an interesting, uh, an interesting contrast. Uh, I mean, about School Direct um, uh, and, and, and school-led ITT. So, I mean, the, the, the first thing I need to say is it, it is Minister's policy to promote more school-led ITT provisions. So you may not like their policy, but that is, that is their policy. Uh, what I'd say about the implementation of their policy is that I think the key word here is partnership, the partnership word that you used. So um, uh, actually most school direct provision is done in partnership with universities and HEIs. So um, 15 years ago, I think um, ITT was a partnership between schools and universities. I think it still is. I think the terms of trade of the partnership have changed and maybe there are some issues about how it's working in some places. I think there are certainly some issues about um, the application process that we've heard a lot about today. Um, uh, but, I mean, I see, as well as there being some change, quite a lot of continuity there, and some of that debate feels a bit unnecessarily oppositional to me. Perhaps that's the government's fault to some extent, um, but I think uh, ITT is, is and will remain in large measure a partnership between, between schools and universities, but roles may change, is, uh, is what I'd say. Uh, ab- about pay... Um, I mean, the main thing I need to say is that both this government and the last coalition government were committed to a policy of pay restraint right across the public sector, and there's not a lot I can do about that. Um, uh, I mean, what I will say is that um, schools have the flexibility to pay teachers more um, so that they're not bound by formal pay scales in the way they were, though, of course, their ability to pay more is constrained by the budget, which is a, uh, a whole other argument. Um, finally, so just because I, I feel the need to respond to things that said about, about the pension scheme, uh, and obviously the pension scheme was reformed in 2011, along with other schemes in the public sector, it's still a very good scheme, is all I would say about it, and there's not a lot of sign of teachers wanting to leave it, and I think if they took advice from an actuary, they wouldn't. Um, Yeah, I want to come back on just a couple of things. So first of all, on this uh, point around the image of teaching, sometimes I hear people make an analogy between the teaching profession and the armed forces, which is quite interesting in terms of the reputation of those two two, two bodies. But what I would say is if you think about advertising, how many adverts do we see for uh, our armed forces, bearing in mind that we're trying to decrease uh, the number of troops, and actually how many adverts do we see for teachers, bearing in mind we're trying to increase the number of teachers? Um, You know, there's got to be uh, an issue issue there. Um, And in terms of the actual numbers around people leaving the profession, just to put this into context, so we said that the workforce of teachers is around half a million uh, teachers. Um, In in the period of time, November 13 to November 14, 50,000 teachers left the profession, whether that be because they weren't happy or retired or whatever else. So so that's 10%. That's a huge number and more than actually we're we're training each year as well. So just two points there. Thanks very much. My name is Stella Chernova and I represent here today Time Plan Education Agency, which is the first one in this country that was established to recruit teachers at the time of the first signs of crisis. Now, um, um, Laura has mentioned that last year we saw 18,000 teachers leaving this country to um, teach in a range of international schools. Now, um, I work for the agency that brings foreign teachers to meet the demand mm-hmm. in this country, okay? And uh, um, last July, we saw the first time, for the first time, actually all the agencies, all of the um, schools involved in recruitment, meeting the quota 
set by the government, whereby we couldn't bring any more teachers, but the demand was still there. So the question for uh, Marcus is, are we going to see um, any changes in terms of the quota, in terms of um, what we can do okay. to help with the international recruitment? Thank you. Hello, I'm Norma Darby, recently retired assistant head teacher from a large comprehensive just outside London. I have two sons. I'm obviously a biased mother, but they're charismatic, intelligent, great young people who are actually making a success of teaching, but wouldn't come into teaching in the way that I knew it with a barge pole, which broke my heart because I loved it. But they knew me and they knew a lot of other teachers inevitably because teachers always talk to teachers. They take less pay, but they work in a system. My one son works as a, um, a teacher, a foreign, you know, foreign languages yeah. teacher in, a, in a, an international company. The other works abroad, teaching English to um, students in uh, undergraduates abroad. They don't come into teaching in this country, partly because of the workload, because they have seen so much of it, but mostly because... It's not so much the, the public that don't appreciate teachers, but the government that doesn't seem to trust them. Okay. And they felt they are given the freedom to do creative, interesting things without someone saying, that's not on the curriculum and it's week 26 and you should be at this point. Okay, thank you. And thank you for bringing up the word creativity. I'm going to, I'm going to draw the questions to a close now. What I'm going to do is ask each of the panellists to just give a kind of final thought of responding to the questions or a sort of a final comment. So, Marcus, can I start with you? Um, I just want, just want to comment on the, yeah. on, on the question about overseas teachers. Yeah. So um, uh, the, a quota was reached last summer, but it wasn't a quota for teachers. It was a quota for um, uh, all non-EU migration. <laughs> uh, so this is about wider government immigration right. policy. Uh, and the Home Office has its interests and we have ours. Uh, ours are to recruit more overseas teachers, and that conversation continues. Okay. Thank you. And is there any other general point you'd like to make? Uh, well, I, I think the general point was thank you very much. I mean, <laughs> mainly, I, I just wanted to, you know, hear the things that you you had to say, and I've I've heard some some familiar points, but also quite a number of things that I hadn't heard from others. So okay. thank you, Charlotte. Um, I think my main point is that uh, whilst the it is hard to be a teacher whilst it's always going to be a challenge however high your workload is um we i just want people to know that we do love our job we are resilient we still go back every single day and i know some say we like to moan but you know when we do but that's what allows us sometimes to go back in that next day and the day after and we are there for our students um, and we are highly skilled and i work with brilliantly creative people um, who would do anything for each other for the students um, and I think it is the support that we need from you know outside that that would make the difference to the feeling amongst teachers in school thank you Adam um, I, I would just uh, emphasise the points around partnership uh, that, that, that I'd already made. And, it, and in particular, I would say, uh, in terms of universities, the real uh, lesson that we have to learn as a sector, I think, is that through the process of teacher education, we have to see that this is more than just a conveyor belt of producing quality teachers. It's about having a direct impact on pupil progress and school improvement as a part of that training. Um, I just wanted to quickly say... Um Someone said that we're afraid of losing knowledge, but you don't really need to be a teacher to teach. 
I mean, we're constantly learning every single day. I mean, I'm learning right now, even though like not all of us are here teachers. Um, for example, doctors, they teach, our parents teach. I mean, recently my mom's just taught me how to use a washing machine a few weeks ago, but um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, the point is, you, you don't really need teachers to teach. You can, you can use technology and people around you. So, yeah. Thank you for that. Laura. Um, on the point about the sons uh, going and doing different types of teaching jobs, I do think we have to be quite brutally realistic about teaching. The workload is hard. It's a difficult job. I don't think we're going to get away from that. It's the same way that there are some people who train to be doctors and they go and become plastic surgeons and do three hours in the morning and that's what they choose to do. And then there are other people who are in there in A&E doing those long shifts because that's the thing that is, is their calling in life. So I think, I think we can be fine about that. The issue is when yesterday afternoon we get a call and says uh, and, and are told that Cambridge and Oxford are probably not going to run their history PGC courses this year because it's the way this whole system is working. And then this morning we get an email saying, oh, new rule, uh, we've changed it for history, just for history, not for PE who got screwed over last week, but history's been changed, so we're going to keep them. That is when people start to get put off because those young people see in the media and in the press, because we've got to report it, someone's being treated one way, someone's being treated another way, this whole shambles don't know what they're doing, so I'm out of here and I'm going to go and do those jobs abroad. That's what upsets me. If you do it because you want to, that's fine. If you do it because the whole thing is in chaos... That is a problem. Thank you. Can I thank all of our panellists? So it's so very quick. Can I, can I also thank all of you for, for attending, particularly those of you who have been standing and squashed in the, in the back. Uh, somebody said to me beforehand, they said, oh, when I first saw about this event, I thought it was going to be all afternoon, one till five. I mean, I think we probably could have stayed and discussed. There's a, something for, for the RSA Academies and for the RSA to think about, actually, whether more events to consider some of these really complicated issues would be worthwhile. Um, but I think an awful lot to, to think about, things we've heard before and new things too. Uh, so thank you all for your time have a good afternoon thank you for listening if you enjoyed this podcast why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go just visit our website the rsa.org and follow the links to the rsa vision mobile app